Good morning. Let's go ahead and make our way back to our seats. I know we're throwing you some serious curves today. I know when you looked up here this morning and saw Tim leading the music, you thought, and this is great, Tim's going to be doing the music and the teaching. And then you see me up here, and you're like, oh no, Tim's not doing all the, the hats today. Um, well, I realize that uh, I know probably most of you, but for those who are maybe are newer or visiting, my name's Brian Bliss, and uh, I'm on staff here, I've been on staff the past eight years as worship pastor, and I appreciate Tim giving me the chance to, to teach on the topic of worship uh, today. Uh, I think it fits perfectly. If you look at where we're coming off of on the Sermon on the Mount, um, and then also where we're going to be headed, what's next is, is some, some review of some of the Psalms, which is an amazing book of, of worship as the authors poured out their hearts in the form of song and prayers and are just so transparent. It's a great book. Uh, if, you, if you don't read the Psalms all that often, I would encourage you to get into the Psalms. It's such a great book of worship. Well, when we look at this past, what, what we learned in the Sermon on the Mount series, um, you saw as Tim talked and the team talked each week, they were comparing many times two different things. Uh, they compared two different kinds of trees or two different types of professions, uh, two different foundations. And we saw that to some extent, the evidence of whether or not one is truly a believer is in whether one does the words of Jesus. Do the actions in our lives match and display what's taken place in our heart? In fact, as he mentioned last week as he was wrapping up the series, he, he made this comment. He said, real faith plays itself out in real life. He said that you could see it in your workplace. You can see it in your family as you interact with your family, your children. You can see it for those who are on social media. You should be able to see that difference. It's real. It's salt and it's light. Well, today, as we begin to take a look at worship, I think you'll see a continuation of that very same thing. The fact true worship is an all-of-life response. So this, this week and next, uh, we're going to be talking about worship, and we're going to take a look at it from a couple different angles. This week, we're going to look at why we worship. Why do we worship God? What are the the reasons, what are the attributes that would cause us to worship God? And then next week, we're going to talk about how we worship. How does it play out practically day in and day out in our life? More than just simply something we do here on Sunday. So as we get started, it probably makes sense to just simply define worship, right? If you look at Webster's definition, you would see extravagant respect or admiration for devotion or devotion to an object of esteem. In a religious or a spiritual content, context, it's reverence offered a divine being or supernatural power. Also, an act of expressing such reverence. Well, if we look at Scripture, I think there's a couple Scriptures that stand out to me that I think capture the thought of worship being an all-of-life response. In Mark 12.30, says, And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. We see a similar thought 
in the Old Testament verse in Deuteronomy 6, 5 to 7. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. So we can see in these scriptures, we can see the the truth that our love for God, our worship for God is something that should impact all of our life. It's an all of life response. I like this quote from Bob Coughlin in his book, True Worshippers. Worship can't be confined to what we do in a room on Sunday morning. It's more than simply lifting our hands or having a transcendent emotional experience. Our worship includes the ordinary and mundane things we think, say, and do each day, as well as the more significant and spectacular. It's an all-of-life response to the forgiveness we've received through the gospel. And I would state it also like this. When we understand what Christ has done for us, his forgiveness, his salvation. Our response should be something that's far greater than something we simply do here on Sunday morning in a a single service at church. It should be something that impacts from the time that we wake up in the morning to the time that we go to bed at night. So today, as we look at why we worship, we're going to look at how worship is an all-of-life response to who he is, what he has done, what he's doing, and what he will do. Would you pray with me as we begin to look at these things? Father, thanks for just the privilege we have to worship you. God, today as we talk about your attributes, God, may we just be in awe of who you are. May we realize the importance of worshiping you, not just when we're here on Sundays, but when we're living our life. May it be an all-of-life response. It's in your name. Amen. Well, as we begin to dive into these different aspects, I, I really I want to challenge you with a question and some thoughts as, as I want you to reflect on these different attributes. But this past week, Susan and I, had a chance to go to Colorado, and I love Colorado. I mean, I think anytime you go someplace like that where, it's, where there's mountains or where there's an ocean, you just have a sense of awe of God and his creation. I feel, you know, you're driving through those mountains, you just feel so small, and you just look and you see the power of God and the beauty of God and his creation. And before I left, I'd started to read this book by Paul David Tripp called Awe, why it matters for everything we think, say, and do. And he had some things in that book that really made me think, and they applied so well with what I wanted to talk today and and to teach on worship. So here here are the questions and thoughts that came out of that book. Are you in awe of God? Given what Christ has done for you, do you have the level of awe that he deserves? And then probably the most challenging one is this. Are the things in your life that you are in awe of pointing you to God or away from God? And Tripp says the importance of this is because it's the things that we are in awe of 
and captivated by, the things that capture our focus and our attention, those are the things that we worship. So he gives us this this challenge in this comment. He says, we get so obsessed with our own desires, plans, schedules, and accomplishments that we have little time to meditate and reflect on the awesome glory that is ours to see and remember. You know, awesome, we use that word, and awe is part of the word awesome. I know I, I throw the word around, you know, all the time. Uh, we'll typically say, man, that's an, that's an awesome car, or we might watch a sports be watching sports and say, man, that was an awesome game. Um, if you're around Jim Stites or you were around Drew Matthews and you start talking about Chick-fil-A, you're going to hear the word awesome come out of their mouth. <laughs> but hopefully as we reflect on the different aspects of God, that our sense of awe for God will just truly increase. We'll see how awesome he truly is and why we worship God. Well, first we need to understand what does Scripture really tell us about worship, and there's a couple key things. One is he commands our worship. We see in Exodus, when he was giving the Ten Commandments, he says in Exodus 23, you must not have any other God but me. He goes on to say in verse 5 in that chapter, you must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. He's a jealous God. Jealous for our worship. And we see in the New Testament in John chapter 4, when the Samaritan woman comes out to the well to draw water and Jesus begins to interact with her, he says this, but the time is coming and indeed it's here now when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him in that way. That's, that's an incredible thought, to think that the God of the universe seeks us as worshipers. He is seeking for those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. So let's begin to take a look at some of these attributes and descriptions of who he is. We're going to look today at the fact that he is our creator. He is our protector, our shelter. He is our rescuer, our savior. And he is a God who hears Now, there clearly are many, many more attributes of God that that you can focus on or that we could talk about, and we don't have, we're going to look at these. But I pray as as you read scripture and as you go throughout your life, reflect on the different attributes of God. Be intentional about looking for Him in your daily life. Increase your awe for who He is. So we're going to put this slide up as we begin to talk about he's our creator. This is a, a picture of, a, of the, through the Hubble telescope. If we can bring the lights down just a little bit. Psalms 19.1 says, The heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day, they continue to speak. Night after night, they make him known. What kind of power does it take to create the universe. You know, the Bible starts off in Genesis 1.1 and he says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In verse 3 and then throughout, he says, and God said, let there be light and there was light. And God said, he literally spoke and the world was created. 
I, I read this comment in the book, Truth Matters, by the, the author said, as he was thinking about, man, what, would it, what does it take to make the universe? He says, I can't even make my bed, let alone, <laughs> let alone think about what it would take to make a leaf or a panda bear or a supernova. It's, it's awesome. This is hard to grasp. You look at this next slide. I don't know if you've heard this comparison before. But scientists have realized as they've looked through those, that Hubble telescope and looked into the universe that there are more stars, not just like some more, literally multiple times, the number of grains of sand on all the beaches in the world. What? I mean, I can't even, I can't even comprehend that. Think about how huge a star is. And if you've been on a beach and you pick up a handful of sand and you just kind of let that fall and you start to see the thousands of grains just, you know, just in your hand, can you, can you even fathom the power that it takes to create a universe that has that many stars? It's, it's unbelievable. It's incredible. Another reason to be in awe of God is not only the things that we can physically see, whether it's through a telescope or whether we just are, like I was in Colorado, viewing the mountains. What about the things that are so small that we, we have to look at through the, a high-powered microscope? They've, as they, science has, has begun to learn and discover more over the years, they see the complexity of a single cell is mind-boggling. The amount of information that's in DNA is mind-boggling. It's awesome. All of creation, the things seen and the things unseen, point to our God whose power, intelligence, and creative ability is just mind-boggling. I like this quote, again, from, from Tripp. As we encounter the physical world every day, we should be blown away by the glory of God to which it points. And it makes me think of Romans 1.20. It says, forever since the world was created... People have seen the earth and the sky through everything God made. They can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. And let's not forget that he made you and me. In Psalms 139, verses 13 to 16, it says it beautifully. It says, you made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous. How well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion, as I was woven together in the dark of the womb. You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. And in Jeremiah 1.5, I knew you before I formed you in your mother's womb, before you were born. I set you apart and appointed you as my prophet to the nations. You need to realize and be thankful for how God has made you. He created you with purpose. He made you perfect the way you are. I think sometimes we, we get so worked up about trying to, to be somebody we're not or, or feel inferior for some reason. God, God made you. You are wonderfully made. You are his creation. He loves you. Respond to God by taking time to reflect on the amazing creation that you see around you. God is our creator. It's who he is, and it's why we worship him. He is also our protector. 
And I love this next slide. Lisa Whitmer actually sent me this picture a couple years ago um, with a verse. And I, it, I think these are moments and pictures like this just point to God. He gives us these things to show us his incredible creation. Can you guys see? I don't know if you can see it real clear in the picture, but it's a mom, mama bird with, these, with her wings spread out, and you can see her, her babies under her wings. Psalms 91.4 says, He will cover you with his feathers. He will shelter you with his wings. His faithful promises are your armor and protection. I also love the story of Rahab. Now, I'm going to be giving you some examples today. We don't have time to, to do deep dives, but I'm just going to mention some things that, that I think of in Scripture that stand out for some of these qualities. But I would encourage you, again, to reflect, think of others, spend time. But Rahab is a great example of, uh, of being protected. She was a prostitute that lived in Jericho, and as the spies were going into Jericho to spy out that city before they were to attack and conquer it, they were protected because of Rahab's faith. She believed in the God of Israel. She knew that he was real. Because of her faith, God protected her. Another great example, I think, is in David's life. You know, I think we, if, when you think of David, you think of him as king. But it, the reality is, when you look at Scripture, from the time that he was actually anointed to the time that he became king was many years. And in that time frame, do you remember all those stories where Saul tried to kill him because of his jealousy for, uh, for David? And God protected him all those times. In 2 Samuel 22, verses 1 to 4, it says, This is David's song of praise. David sang this song to the Lord on the day the Lord rescued him from all his enemies from Saul. He sang, The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my savior. My God is my rock in whom I find protection. He is my shield, the power that saves me. Reflect on the times that God has protected you in your life. Be thankful for those times that he's protected you. Many times, and I know you guys probably believe this too, there are times that we are unaware of God's protection. But he is there. He protects us and he is a God who rescues, rescues us. God is our savior. He is our rescuer. He is worthy of our worship. It's why we worship him. It's who he is. When you look at rescue and you think of this as well, I think of the story of Jehoshaphat. Judah's war with the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Edomites, all of the ites. He rescued them miraculously as they faced what were insurmountable odds. God went before and provided the victory. It was God's hand that provided the victory and the rescue. If you're in church any time in your life as a youngster, you heard the story of Daniel in the lion's den in Daniel chapter 3, how God miraculously shut the jaws of those lions even when they threw Dave, uh, Daniel in that lion's pit. He was unharmed because God rescued him. And then one of my favorites, which a small group that I used to be in used to tease me relentlessly because I would get fired up on the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, man. We could, we could be talking about, hey, that, those chips are good. I'd be like, yeah. Remember this story about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? It was unbelievable as God would rescue these three as they're thrown into the fiery furnace and they see this fourth person in there that's with them as God saves them miraculously. Maybe... 
There have been dramatic times in your life where God has rescued you. But even if there's not, even if there's not, be in awe for the power of God to rescue and to save as we read these accounts throughout the Bible. Be in awe of Him. He is a God that rescues us and He's a God that saves us. It's who He is and it's why we worship Him. God hears our prayers. When you look at some stories, I love the story of Elijah and the contest that he had on, on Mount Carmel where He's in this battle uh, with the prophet, uh, prophets of Baal, and he calls out to God and asks God to hear him. And 1 Kings captures it in, in chapter 18, verse 37 to 39. He says, O Lord, answer me. Answer me so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have brought them back to yourself. Immediately, the fire of the Lord flashed down from heaven and burned up the young bull, the wood, the stones, the dust. It even licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell face down on the ground and cried out, the Lord, he is God. Yes, the Lord is God. Elijah also prayed for the starting and the stopping of rain. Three years, you know, without rain. I mean, and when he would pray for it to rain again, it would it rain again. God answers prayers miraculously. Hannah prayed for a child, and the Lord answered in 1 Samuel 1. I think this one is a tough one, and Tim talked a little bit about this before, but I think sometimes we get discouraged because we don't think that God is answering prayers. But as, as we learned and as Tim was talking about, the truth is he sees everything. Sometimes his answers to us are better than what we are asking for. He knows what we need. He hears you when you pray and when you cry out to Him. Know that. Continue to cry out to Him. He listens to our prayers. It's who He is. It's why we worship Him. When we reflect on why we worship God and you look at God's many attributes, be in awe of Him. Grow your awe for him. Let's turn our attention to what he has done. We defined worship as an all-of-life response. Let's examine the most important response or decision that a person will ever make in their life. Now, there are many decisions that we, that we make that are important throughout our life, right? When we just celebrated graduations, and so as some of the high school graduates begin to think about what's next for them. Do they go to college? Do they enter the workforce? What career do I want to pursue? Those are huge decisions. It's big. When you're going to buy a house or you're considering moving, that's a big decision. A lot of people are getting married this year. My daughter is about a month out from getting married. I'm kind of freaking out. (laughs) Those are big decisions. Huge decisions. But there's no greater decision, there's no single response that you will ever make in your life than how you respond to the gospel. And here's why. That response changes where you'll spend eternity. 
It's the start of you becoming a worshiper. Let's look at the good news of the gospel here. Titus 3, 5, and 6 says, He saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. He generously poured out the Spirit upon us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Romans 5, 8, and 9 says, But God showed His great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, He will certainly save us from God's condemnation. This is the offer of eternal life. Look at this in Romans 10, 9, and 10. If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God. And it is by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That decision is the start of a relationship with God. That was the coffee stain moment that Tim talked about. Have you had that moment? That's the moment that changes everything. This is the starting point for you becoming a worshiper. It's when you move from just being a singer, when you come in here and you don't know Christ and you sing songs, you're just singing. If you're in your car and you're just you're singing, you're just singing. But when you know Christ, you become a worshiper. It's when you move from the wide path to the narrow path. And the reverse of this is also true. And let's not make light of it as you've seen in recent weeks. Not making a decision to follow Christ also impacts your eternity. To not repent, not to call on Him to save you changes where you will spend eternity. You'll be separated from Him. By making that decision, you're choosing to trust yourself to take on yourself the penalty for your sin instead of faith in God and trusting in God's grace. It's why we make the plea and the comment at each of the services at the end. That's why we do that. We want you to trust Christ. We want you to call on Christ. It's not about how many times you come to church. It's not about being a good person. You can't be a good enough person. It's not going to happen. Baptism isn't it. It's an important step. It's, it's obedience. It displays our faith in a practical way outwardly, but it doesn't save you. It's Christ, the cross, alone that will save you. We worship God for the cross. We worship God because of what He has done for us. As we look at what He's doing, I, this is just really a, a simple, I guess, plea to say, look in your life intentionally and reflect on these attributes like that we're talking about today and the many more that, that you know of God when you read Scripture. Look for Him because, I, trust me, He is active in your life in these various ways. He is your protector, your shield. He is your rescuer, your savior. He hears your prayers. He is worthy of our worship and our praise. So as you live your life, reflect on him and worship him for what he is doing. As the worship team comes back up, I want to close with this final thought about what he will do. That's just weird saying that was the worship team comes back up. <laughs> Revelation reminds us 
of the victory to come. Christ is victorious and all evil has been done away with. Revelation declares with clarity that Jesus Christ is the victor. He is our king and he has already won. Just as we saw the comparison in the Sermon on the Mount many times of two things, we see here in Revelation there are only two kingdoms, two armies, two sides. You must decide whom you will serve and whom you will worship. The prince of this world or the king and lord of all creation. As a Christian, your future is secure. Revelation 4, 10 and 11 says, The 24 elders fall down and worship the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and they exist because you created what you pleased. So can we respond and worship? Can, would you stand and let's sing and worship our God and reflect on who he is and what he's done, what he's doing and what he will do. Let's, let's worship him together. Mm-hmm.